Welcome to the Evolving Advisor Podcast, dedicated to equipping independent financial advisors with the tips, insights, and knowledge to help you achieve success in business and life. Host Jeff Concepcion shares 30 years of experience as an advisor, entrepreneur, and CEO. Join Jeff and the industry's top thought leaders as they help you evolve from where you are today to where you want to be tomorrow. Now here's your host, Jeff Concepcion. Hi, this is Jeff Concepcion, and welcome to the Evolving Advisor podcast. Uh, Thrilled to have a very dear friend and uh, collaborator, uh, Dan Solon, joining us today. Dan is the number one. He's my neighbor in Bonita Springs, Florida, and he's also the author of a best, uh, best-selling New York Times book uh, and author of the smartest series of investing books, the smartest sales book you'll ever read, and Ask How to Relate to Anyone. He blogs weekly for advisor perspectives where he has a substantial following. He's a former securities attorney. I'll call him a reformed securities attorney. He graduated from Johns Hopkins University and the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He's a founder and president of Solon Strategic LLC and Evidence-Based Advisor Marketing LLC. So thanks so much for visiting and chatting today, Dan. I'm really excited to be with you, Jeff, and very much looking forward to it. And I should thank you for some of the wonderful work that you guys did on the marketing side of your business, helping a number of our partner offices and then helping our enterprise tell our story on M&A. I think you have a unique way of capturing kind of a feel rather than putting out content that feels generic. I think you do a great job and your team does a great job of capturing you know, someone's individual expressions or, or messaging. So thanks for all the great work you've done for our shop. Oh, you're nice to say that. You all made it very easy. You're very easy to work with, and you have a lot of personality. It wasn't difficult. And you should mention charisma. We have a lot of personality. I think we're also very, (laughs) very charismatic. Right. And modest, too. Yes. And I would say attractive. attractive. I think on average, we probably have far better looking folks than most of our competitors. No, without a doubt. Yes. But the more I say, the more the sort of the modesty is sort of underplayed, (laughs) underplayed, I suspect. So... Um, so evidence-based advisor marketing, I, I have a sense because you and I have chatted, but I don't think I could articulate it the way you could define evidence-based coaching. So everything we do is evidence-based just the way everything you do with your investments is evidence-based and evidence-based coaching is coaching based on the research that I've done over the last two or three years. It's all set forth in my last two books. One is the smartest sales book you'll ever read that you were kind enough to mention. And my most recent book is Ask How to Relate to Everyone, where I take that research, which I had applied just to the sales process, and I broadened it so it applies to all interactions, whether they're social, collegial, familial, or business. Talk a little bit about the concept, because... I think it might seem intuitive to some, but but maybe not to others, how to relate to anyone. I suspect what that means is how to never meet a stranger uh, and maybe the way that we interact and the way that we speak and the questions that we ask, uh, how to make people comfortable engaging in dialogue with us. What are some of the root learnings from the book? And obviously I'll encourage people because I have to go through the book. I'll, I think they'd, they'd glean a lot from it, but how would you sort of distill some of the key learnings of that book? So I'll take you a little bit on my own personal journey. Uh, I was a wealth advisor, and um, but I was a wealth advisor who had written two New York Times bestselling investing books. So I got a lot of warm leads. 
And it leads that if anybody else got you, would, including me, I guess you would think uh, all I have to do is show up basically, and I'm going to convert this prospect into a client. And I did what everybody, what I was trained to do, really. I kind of explained what I did and explained the, the kind of data behind evidence-based investing and people sat there and I'm not saying I, I was totally unsuccessful, but what I, what I was, was no more successful than my colleagues who weren't getting leads like I was getting. So I took time off like a year and I just wanted to research how do humans interact? And I thought like many of your listeners, I'm assuming your listeners are mostly advisors, many of them believe it's all about what I'm saying and how effective I am in speaking and presenting and conveying. And the core takeaway from all of my research is you, it isn't about what we say, it's about how, it isn't about conveying information, it's about eliciting information from others. And the core for eliciting information is showing curiosity and asking questions. It sounds like a simple concept, but it's actually quite difficult for most people to implement. So is it rather than telling, is it more about asking and probing and sort of genuine interest in their story versus a desire to tell our story, which I suspect is more innate? Right. You'll read a lot of what I think is misinformation about how important it is to tell our story and how the brain lights up when it hears the word story. And it's true, but the brain that's lit up is the brain and the person telling the story. The, when I looked at the neuroscience and psychology studies, when we're listening, our brains are actually very distracted. So I, I'm okay right now because I keep my answers really brief. If I talk for more than a couple of minutes, people are gonna tune out. They're gonna start focusing on other things. The attention span of humans, very, very short. So it's all about showing a genuine interest. I'm, I'm fond of saying what I teach is not a parlor trick. If, if you're trying to manipulate people, it is stunning how sensitive people are and how much they know and resent when they're being manipulated. So it's all about showing a genuine, authentic, sincere interest in other people and not trying to direct the conversation in any particular way. And that, that really begs an interesting question, I guess, because for an advisor who has a genuine interest, I suspect by nature, without training, coaching, or guidance, they would interact in that fashion. And for someone who doesn't innately do it, um, I suspect it's either not of interest to them, or maybe there's just a, a lack of awareness. So how easy is it for people to improve who stylistically have not operated in this fashion before? Do you find it's because it's just not the way that they communicate or because perhaps they're more interested in telling their story than hearing someone else's? So let me just quarrel with your premise, which is that most advisors you think are genuinely curious and would normally be inclined to act in this way. I've taught my process called the Solon process to thousands of advisors all over the world. And I could count on one hand the number who were normally inclined to do this or, or to do it in a way that I teach it, which is if you start with the premise that advisors have asymmetric information, right? People come to advisors 
and advisors are justified in thinking that people are actually interested in what they have to say. So most advisors in my experience believe that they have something to say that's very special and that's of interest. And they think they know what should be of interest to prospects sitting in front of them. But the reality is while they think they show an interest in those people, either they don't by dominating the conversation, speaking much too much, not showing any interest or very modest interest, or they believe that asking questions means asking questions that are going to get to their agenda, like what's your net worth, tell me about your goals, your retirement goals, tell me about your experience with um, other advisors. Those are all questions, but they're the wrong questions. So it's interesting. So as, as advisors engage with clients and maybe even with prospects, with clients, I suspect there's some degree of relationship and rapport and, and knowledge. Uh, I think one of the things people are challenged to do is differentiate, articulate their value, kind of position what makes them different or unique. And I suspect from a marketing and a coaching standpoint, that's something you spend time on. Can you talk a little bit about what the process looks like as you speak to an advisor and how do you help them sort of discover and how do you help them communicate or explain their value? Because 95% of advisors sound so similar that there's really not a unique message that they deliver. So the last point you made is particularly insightful, Jeff. Uh, if you look at that, that kind of trite cliche menu item called how we are different. I always joke that it could be rewritten how we are the same. We're fiduciaries, we're evidence-based, we care, you should trust us, we, we charge a transparent fee. So you're right, the challenge is how do you differentiate yourself? So let me just tell you what my experience has been here. I, I don't know how many talks I've given over the last couple of years, it's many. And at each talk, at one point, I ask the audience this, I say, have you ever had the experience where social or business, you said something to somebody else that you thought was really interesting? You Maybe you went on a special trip or you, you ran a marathon or you achieved another goal, but you thought it was really interesting. And the other person stopped and looked at you and said, Jeff, tell me more about that. Of the thousands of people I've asked that question to, maybe five have raised their hand. And these are by definition, really interesting people with very interesting lives. So I asked every time somebody says, yes, I say, tell me more about that experience. And they'll say, oh, that's my best friend she always makes me feel so special, or that's my aunt, or that's my mom. One, one advisor said, that's my mom. Everybody loves her. And I, then I say, so how does everybody feel about that, that person? And how do you feel about that person? The answers are always the same. We love her. I love her. She's my best friend. So then I say, what if I ask that question? Say the room had 100 people in it, and 99 people raise their hand and you were in that audience, Jeff, and, and the other 99 people raised their hand and they all said this, yeah, that's, that's Jeff, he's that person. And then I said to those 99 people, how do you feel about Jeff? And they all in unison said, we love Jeff, 
I always tell that story. And then I say, listen, if you want to differentiate yourself, you be Jeff in my example. You be that person who is genuinely interested, who instead of trying to be the most interesting person is the most interested person, who instead of trying to be the smartest person in the room is the most curious person. When you become that person, you don't have to worry about differentiating yourself. That's so, so well said, you know, because everybody sort of searches to create their story or their brand or their experience or whatever else. And maybe it's just so simple to demystify and say by caring more, by being more interested or more understanding or at a deeper level, wanting to connect with people that in and of itself is, is powerful. And I've always, you know, I've, and I'm not sure if you agree with what I just said, but I'm going to say something further. I've always told people that in my opinion, the most powerful selling occurs when you're not selling at all, because when you sell, there's sort of, you're sitting across the table and there's a wall that comes up, but when you're not attempting to sell anything, when you're attempting just to connect, you can communicate with people in a different way. There's no barrier and there's just an intimacy that can be developed uh, more quickly and a more genuine connection. That's my thought. The most powerful selling occurs when no one's selling anything. Does that make any sense? So I couldn't agree with you more. That's, that's particularly profound. I mean, it took you maybe 10 minutes to come up with that. It took me like a year and a half of, uh, of research. So it, what's fascinating is the science behind your observation. So what we know is this. We know first, humans are unbelievably sensitive to being sold anything or to being persuaded about anything. There are studies where, um, one study that comes to mind is they took two groups of people and they said to one group, we're gonna have you solicit charitable donations from this list of people who give donations. And here's a script. We want you to read the script. We're going to pay you 10 bucks an hour. I forget the hourly rate, but that's it. It doesn't, you're not on a commission. They said to the other group, same thing, but you're going to get a percent of what you bring in. Consistently, the, the group that was not incentivized did better than the group that was incentivized. And the psychologists theorized that people could tell that they were self-interested. There are a number of studies that show when we believe we're being persuaded of just about anything, cortisol, which is the stress hormone uh, measured in the saliva and the blood, our cortisol level goes up. So we know exactly what you said, Jeff. We know that trying to sell or persuade someone is the opposite of what is likely to maximize a sale. So then the question becomes, so if you can't sell, what can you do? Well, there's another series of studies by a guy named Antonio Damasio, who is a neuroscientist who has a very large collection. He's famous. He wrote a book called Descartes' Error. And in that book, um, he talks about one person who had a brain tumor. They removed the tumor. The person was a very successful executive who had a lovely family life and seemed to have everything going for him. But as a consequence of the surgery, he was, he was still capable of processing information perfectly rationally, but he couldn't feel any emotions. So you could show him very disturbing pictures of terrible accidents and tragedies, no emotion whatsoever. 
because he couldn't feel emotion, his entire life crumbled. He couldn't make any decisions. He couldn't decide what to have for breakfast, barely. Um, his marriage crumbled. He became involved, he lost his job, became involved in a Ponzi scheme. I mean, everything went to hell. And what uh, psychologists and neuroscientists believe is really exactly what you said, which is we make decisions based on emotions. We don't make decisions rationally. So advisors spend all this time with all this rational discourse on their, both in their personal meetings and on their website, showing how well qualified they are, showing their expertise. And while that's important, they ignore making an emotional connection, which as you just said, is the entire reason why we hire somebody. We don't hire the best qualified people, even though sometimes we do by accident. We hire the people who've made an emotional connection. And when we walk out of meeting with them, we say, oh, Jeff, I liked him. He seemed like a really likable person. When we like people and trust them, when we like someone, we trust them. When we like and trust them, we hire them. And I can't tell you how many people I've trained in the Solon process who said, I did exactly what you said at the first meeting. No notes, just showed an interest in them, let the conversation go wherever it was gonna go. And at the end of the meeting, the only rigid part of my process, I instruct them to say, how would you like to proceed? I can't tell you how many times um, clients of mine who have coached have said, they just say, okay, I'd like to get started. That's my only question. And sometimes it's so stunning because they've never discussed how they're going to invest the money. And one, I remember one client runs a huge firm said to me, so I made this mistake, but I, I couldn't control myself. I said, aren't you even interested in how I'm going to invest your money? And the guy said, no, I'm not because I trust you and I know you're going to do right by me. Wow. That's really powerful. You, you just referenced something and I know that you've talked about this before and this was counterintuitive to me. I've always taken copious notes and I do it for several reasons. Number one, I do it out of respect. I want the person to know that what they're saying matters. I want to capture their language with their words, not my words, so that it's not interpreted. It's you know, it's the spoken word as they spoke it. And, and I've just have this sort of library of books of notes that I've taken from this old school fashion and continue to do so. Although I do so more mindfully now while trying to still connect with them and seem interested, but still taking my notes. And I know I've heard you say on a number of occasions, at least in the first meeting that you discourage note-taking. Talk a little bit about that and maybe how, uh, what the rationale is behind it and how that might impede a connection or perhaps send a negative message, uh, even if someone's like myself, I assume I'm generally well-intended when I'm doing it. I'm sure you're very well-intended. Um, I liken uh, uh, the first meeting with the prospect as a first date. And when people, I get a lot of pushback on the no notes because notes are like, kind of like a comfort blanket or something like, you know, advisors, it gives them a lot of comfort to make notes. But so I always say, look, Tell me about the first date with your husband or wife, whatever. And so they'll tell me, we went to dinner, we did that. And I'll say, did you take notes? They'll say, no, of course not. And I'll say, why not? They said, well, we're just trying to find out if we had something in common. And I said, that's what a meeting with a prospect is. You're just trying to find out if 
you're trying to find out if they're an appropriate prospect for you. They're trying to find out if they like you and are going to trust you with their life savings. When you take notes, it shifts the dynamic from a nice informal meeting to a business meeting. And just like you didn't take notes on your first date, um, I don't want you to take notes during the first meeting with the prospect, with one exception. Rarely, but it's been reported to me sometimes, the prospect will talk about things that will require note-taking. Like a prospect might say, do you mind if we go over my financial situation in some detail? And then I advise my clients to say, no, I don't mind. Would it be okay with you if I took some notes? So you're asking for permission and then they're, they're going to say yes. But that very rarely happens because they're so um, stunned by what's going on. They're accustomed to meeting with advisors who lecture them, educate them, go to the whiteboard, talk a blue streak, never show any interest in them at all and don't really care what their agenda is. So if I can just give you one example, Jeff, of, of what, what occurred with, this was reported to me by a client. They, he had this meeting with a couple and he, he did exactly what I said. It was before he met me and he did the whole 55 minutes of talking. And then he said, do you have any questions? And then it, they looked at each other nervously and the wife said, I know we're almost out of time, but we really came to see you about our special needs child. And we were interested in talking about a special needs trust. This is a perfect example of why you don't present and you don't also why you don't take notes. You're just trying to find out what's on their mind. Yeah, that makes good sense. It makes good sense. Um, so, you know, in that sort of initial impression, um, what's the, you know, the objective, I assume, is to determine if there's a connection. So what advice would you have to an advisor who might be later in their career and when clients might be thinking about, you know, engagement or how long they're going to be involved in the business and maybe on the opposite side of that, if it's a, an advisor who's, who's younger and who's just getting established and maybe someone questions their experience. So obviously the, the first key is to make that connection, but if someone's on either end of that spectrum, either late, late career, which many, many advisors are, or a young advisor, how does that experience and age factor play in? Well, I mean, what I've found again is that it, what I coach is it's so rare that people do it, that it, if I can just go back to the neuroscience of it for a minute, what happens when I say, Jeff, tell me about yourself. We know this from a Harvard study, if it's appropriate, by the way, and we can talk about introverts, extroverts, but you know, an extrovert's going to react to that question very differently than an introvert. But let's assume it's you, Jeff, and let's assume what are, what are you, by the way? Are you? I think of you as more of an extrovert than an introvert. How do you how do you define yourself? It's a, that's a really good question. I'm not sure of the answer. I know that I I enjoy being one on one with people. I don't enjoy crowds, and I don't enjoy public speaking, despite the fact that I spend a ton of my time doing public speaking and in crowds and. But I, I feel like I am at my best and most comfortable one-on-one, -on -one, which may be more indicative of an introvert than it is, yeah. an extrovert. What do you typically do New Year's Eve? Uh, <laughs> not, not, not a lot, I don't think. Right. Not a lot. Try to make it up until midnight, which now at it, 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 my ripe old age might be a 50-50 shot. So 
Okay, so those things describe more of an introvert because I can relate to both. I'm an introvert. And I can relate to both of those things. I mean, that's why I would describe myself and I would give the same examples. If, there's a book called Quiet by Susan Cain, C-A-I-N, wonderful book. And it, it basically says that um, extroverts get, their brains get stimulated by large crowds and lots of noise. Introverts, our brains get overwhelmed by it. So, um, but let's assume that you're dealing with more of an extrovert and you say, I say, so Jeff, tell me about yourself. It, it's fascinating. First, the extrovert is eager to talk about themselves as are most people. Um, introverts are more reluctant to talk about themselves, but let's assume you are willing to talk about yourself a little bit. So in your brain, we know from a Harvard study that the prefrontal cortex lights up and two happiness hormones, dopamine and oxytocin, flood into the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And we know, because uh, the studies involve functional MRIs, which measure brain activity in real time. So we know that when people are talking about themselves, especially when they be believe other people can hear them, like they're not just in a room dictating, but they're speaking either one-on-one -on -one or to an audience, we know that that's one of the most pleasurable activities humans can engage in. And that was the bottom line of the study, which was, wow, talking about yourself is as pleasurable as like um, gambling and addictive drugs and anything, whatever it, you find the most pleasurable activity in your life. Well, it turns out that talking about yourself is the same and it's, it's chemical. So whether you're an older advisor or a younger advisor, if you empower others to talk about themselves, um, that conversation is gonna go extremely well. The only caveat I have is no matter how many questions you ask, don't expect the other person to ask you any back or very few uh, because their brain is so overwhelmed with happiness talking about themselves that they're not thinking rationally like, oh, Dan's asked me 10 questions. Maybe I should ask him one or two. They don't think that way. They just think like, this is good. I'm really enjoying this conversation with Dan. Um, and he seems so insightful. I've had this so many times where I talk to people and I generally am interested in them. I'm bored with myself. Whatever I'm saying, I know already. Whatever, when you talk to me, Jeff, I'm learning something, right? So I'm generally interested in what you have to say, but often I don't show any particular insight or intelligence or wit or charm, but people will project all those traits on you. So older advisor, younger advisor, that's the reaction you wanna get. And especially when you get oxytocin flooding into the prefrontal cortex of the brain of your prospect, that is a hormone that is known to um, encourage trust, bonding, it's called the love hormone colloquially. It's what mothers and newborn babies, the mother will have an excess of oxytocin in her brain. Um, and it's part of the bonding process with a new baby. So that's, that's my answer, that's your goal. And it's all chemical. That was my biggest breakthrough. I used to think, oh, I meet you Jeff for the first time and whatever happens, happens. I talk, you talk. We're both trying to score some points maybe, or make. we're both trying to make a favorable impression on the other one, but I have no control over that process. When I did the research and wrote these books, 
I thought this is actually amazing to me because I totally control that process. If I want to, uh, for some perverse reason, create stress and make it a tense meeting, all I have to do is try to persuade you of something. If I want to make the most favorable impression I can, I just have to empower you to talk about yourself. And then I just have to show genuine interest by asking very soft follow-up questions. What was that like? Or why did you decide to go there? Or would you do that again? Or tell me more about that. So let me let me switch gears and it's related, but I know you've got some thoughts on screening and you know determining how qualified a prospect is. And I want to connect that with the notion of time management. So I spend a fair amount of time daily flying places and visiting people and scheduling meetings and returning calls. And a lot of the calls I return are literally blind from a website or a voicemail. My natural inclination, which is not wonderful from a not wonderful from a time management standpoint, because I have a lot on my plate, is to reach out. And so often people start off the conversation by saying, gosh, I didn't expect you'd be the one to call back as the founder of the firm. And in doing so, I, you know, and I, I sort of use this analogy, I kiss a lot, a lot of frogs. But in kissing all these frogs, invariably every 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 times I kiss a frog, there's a princess there. Uh, we were opening up an office that I'm really, really excited about. It's an enormous advisor who just saw our website and called in. So, and rather than handing off these leads, you know, we have a really large advisor joining. We have a substantial firm that we invested in who listened to a podcast and called in. You interviewed them in Naples and Orlando. Um, speaking at these conferences, which I know nine out of 10 times I'm there to share ideas and I'm doing it because again, I'm well-intended but it's this concept of being in traffic and being out there. And the more you're in traffic, yes, you spin your wheels a lot, but good things happen as a result of the effort and activity. So how do you kind of take this notion of screening and qualifying prospects and the importance of time management? And maybe what thoughts or advice do you have for me as someone who's very apt daily to pick up the phone and return to blind inquiry, most of which you know, leads to conversations with folks that aren't a fit. What are your thoughts? So first, I don't know if I could say this any better than you just said it, because what you do espouses all of my principles. So my first thought with you candidly is, how has this worked for you? You built a huge firm, you're enormously successful. Whatever you're doing is obviously working. Why would I come along and cause you harm by saying, oh, I think you should change this for some reason. But what you're doing is also consistent with what I tell advisors to do. I mean, I don't understand all the screening. First, why isn't it on your website? I mean, people say, oh, I don't want to meet with people who have less than a million dollars of assets. I say, well, is that on your website? They say, no. I say, okay, well, put it on your website. You won't get a lot of, almost everybody who calls you first goes to your website. So if that's on your website, they're going to see that. They're unlikely to call you. And then I, I ask them, how many times actually have they met with people when they didn't screen and it turned out that the meeting was just a waste of time. And it turns out this is very overblown, this concern. But then I turn it into where I, where I think you were going and where I suspect happens with you. With you, if you find somebody who isn't suitable for, for your, for Stratus, right? They're just not suitable. Nice people, honest, decent, but they're not suitable. I have no doubt knowing you as I do, that you give them great advice and point them in the right direction. And those people then become ambassadors for Stratus, right? Oh, this I met him, he was so free with his time and gave me such good advice. 
And so that's what I say. So let's say somebody comes to you, they don't have the minimum and you say, oh, well, why don't you call Vanguard, use their personal advisory services. I think that'd be a perfect fit for you. So I, I don't believe in extensive screening. I do believe in a lot of transparency on your website. Yeah, it's that's really well said because you can almost make an argument that, that there is no such thing as a wasted interaction. If you add value to someone else, I love that concept of you create an ambassador. I talk about karma and goodwill and it's mind blowing to me years later when people randomly call back and say, you probably won't remember this, but we spoke seven years ago. You were kind enough to take a call. You told me X, Y, and Z. I've done those things and now I'm running a large practice and I'm not saying it happens daily, but it happens routinely. And it's, I just think it's the concept of, you know, we love what we do and you give people coaching and getting value at the same time. I love what I do. And, you know, maybe if, if I did, if I looked at all the things that I do that don't generate an immediate <laughs> result, I wouldn't want to do anything because I fly around like a lunatic and I take all these calls and 90% of them don't have any immediate return but it's just part of the process. And I think that in doing that, it's assuring continued success. It's part of what we do. And it's part of sort of being, you know, a goodwill ambassador in the industry. I like helping people. I like sharing ideas. So well, you can no, almost okay. argue that any interaction is not a wasted one, right? Uh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Jeff. Also, in terms of great marketing, um, if you ask me what is the single what is a single thing advisors could do to generate business? I would say have great original content on your website that you give away. I mean, look at my case, right? We're, we're a pretty successful firm. We're niche market marketers that helps, I think. But um, I write books that tell everything I know. I mean, you don't have to pay me 500 bucks an hour to coach. You could buy either of my books, particularly the last one for $27.95 and spend a couple hours reading it and you would get a tremendous amount out of that book. But I have always found that giving away content, uh, it's true, I, I don't know if it's 90%, I've never really studied that, but the vast majority of people who read the content will never become clients, but enough will so that I'm very happy. And as for the balance, I'm happy that they've read my book. I'm happy when I get emails saying, you know, I changed entirely the way I interact, not only with my business contacts, but my family, my spouse, my children. I mean, those emails make me feel great. You can't compensate me enough to pay for those emails. And that point you made about having a positive impact on people. I mean, we all know or should know that that is the greatest satisfaction you can get in life. Yeah, it makes great sense. And I think the less you think about money, the less you think about success, the less you think about growth, and the more you just look to be accretive and add value and be impactful and all those things, it comes back to you. You know, and it's this whole concept, the most powerful selling comes when you're not selling, you're just connecting and you're relating. That's when you're the most powerful from a standpoint of whether it's client acquisition or otherwise. So some of these things are somewhat innate, but but on a rational level, it just makes so much sense. Um, so how, so just kind of coming to a conclusion, lots of great content. Every time I talk to you, I thoroughly enjoy it. It's 
it's effortless. And I just love the, the lens and I love the way you look and think about things. So I'm running a successful practice. I want my business to flourish. I want to grow. I want to do better. How would you sort of distill just some general advice to advisors who might be listening and saying, wherever I am, I'm thinking about how to go to the next level. What type of general advice would you give about how I can improve myself as an advisor and as a business owner? So I think there are two separate pieces to that. It's a really challenging question. Uh, the first piece is what I'll call the coaching piece, understanding how to relate to other people. And that's what we've just spent some time talking about. But the second piece is there are some, there's a lot of misinformation about digital marketing, but there is some sound information about digital marketing. So you know that virtually everybody who's referred to you as an advisor or wants to find out information about you, everybody will, will answer this question. I'll say, what do you think that person will do first? Everybody will answer saying, oh, they'll go to my website. I say, okay, well, look at your website. So when you look at the website, it doesn't show that the advisor is warm and relatable. It shows like, it's like a word salad of very detailed, how many angels fit on the head of a pin finance. So I would say, consider revising your website to be consistent with the research I just talked about. The goal of your website should be to make an emotional connection, create what's called effective trust, A-F-F-E-C-T. That's a higher level of trust that you have for people who have the ability to take advantage of you, but you know they never would. Very few websites um, are constructed with that, with that in mind. Secondly, there are, there are some fundamentals of digital marketing over and above the website. I, I really find it astounding how few people, when they do a website, SEO optimize their website. I mean, I'm very skeptical of a lot of, you know, social media marketing schemes and ads and spending a lot of money. But the whole goal of, of your digital marketing is to make it easy for people to find you on the, on the net. So if you're in Omaha, Nebraska, and people are punching in evidence-based advisor, Omaha, Nebraska, you want to come up high in the, in the organic rankings. That's not going to happen unless you've done some SEO optimization. So I think that's also very important. And then I think the other things that are very important is, you know, advisors, you're, you're dealing with high-end people and look at your logo, look at your graphics, look at everything about your firm and say, does this make that kind of impression? I mean, the same advisors who take great care with their personal appearance when they meet have websites and collateral marketing materials like newsletters that are just like typed on Word and don't convey those things. So the advisors that I know who are very successful take a bucket approach to marketing. They have great uh, websites. They have great, they have at least competent uh, benchmark level SEO. Um, they put out a lot of original content. And if they can't do it themselves, they hire people to write for them. They do not rely on shared content, which the Google algorithm uh, differentiates and actually penalizes you for. Um, they have uh, podcasts like this, uh, maybe YouTube channels. And they don't, if I say to them, how do you get so much business? They'll say, it's not any one thing. It's an amalgam of all these different things. 
And that's, that's really well said because, you know, my concept of being in traffic, at least for me at an enterprise level, my goals are slightly different than an advisor's, but it really is new relationships. And it's a little bit of writing and it's a little bit of speaking and it's a little bit of the podcast and a little bit, you know, it's a little bit of a lot of things. And in combination, it's, it just, it seems to happen and it seems to get done. And one medium, the social media, you know, one may be more effective than another at times, but it's sort of putting yourself out there and having the discipline to continue these exercises that I think helps an advisor or as a business owner grow their business. It's being mindful of those things. It's taking just a little bit of time. And I, I was guilty of this for many, many decades early on in the business, but it's being mindful enough to put some time on the business versus in the business, which seems like it should be a natural thing, but I think for most of us, it's not. It requires an effort. So incredibly helpful, Dan. Thank you so much. I, again, I just thoroughly enjoy every time we chat and uh, the podcast is coming up. And I understand when we, uh, or the end of the podcast, when we mentioned the, the notion of the karaoke song that it brought an interesting response. I didn't, she didn't interpret, but I'm, I'm curious what your reaction was when I mentioned that we end with a yeah. podcast karaoke. Yeah. So I read that to my wife who was reading in bed and she told me she almost fell off the bed laughing. Um, and I said, why do you find that so funny? And she said, just the thought of you doing karaoke with anyone <laughs> just, just, just cracks me up. Oh, so introverts, uh, you know, we don't do, we don't have fun the way other people has fun, have fun. Like we don't go to big New Year's Eve parties. Uh, we, you know, we tend to be more into, a, you know, we're quiet, we're analytical, we think a lot, we don't do a lot of showy stuff that could be perceived as showy. I have nothing against karaoke for others. Uh, but it, it the, the lesson to be learned from this little vignette is advisors tend to play the same tape, right? They treat everybody the same, but as we've talked, an introvert's very different from an extrovert. Say to an extrovert, tell me about yourself. You can sit back for 45 minutes. I'm exaggerating. But say to, an, say to me, tell me about yourself. I'm gonna say, cause I, I wanna be polite. I'm gonna say, what would you like to know? Which is my code for, I'll tell you exactly what you wanna know, but no more. Cause I don't like talking about myself. So I thought that's, that story would be helpful to your listeners. Be aware, we're so involved with ourselves. We're so into ourselves. We so think it's all about us. We don't even know who's in front of us, right? So very often I say to people, are you an introvert or an extrovert? And the, their first answer is, you're the first person ever to ask me that question. And I know from reading Susan Cain's book that there is nothing more important if you wanna have a meaningful relationship with someone than understanding that very core personality type. So I hope I didn't overreact to all that, but that, that's, that's the story of the, that's, the, that's why we're not doing karaoke, Jeff. All right, well, uh, my response, by the way, as I listen and sort of digest what you just said is maybe I don't wanna be labeled or put in a box that I'm an introvert or an extrovert because I think I might be a little bit of each. It just depends. I do enjoy the outside interactions, but I also yeah. enjoy my private time. And I would like to tell you that I'm, uh, I'm gonna say that I'm a hybrid. So I'd like you to ask, are you an introvert, an extrovert or a hybrid? We're gonna add that extra category for those. Who well, there is an it. extra category already. We don't have to add it. It's introvert, okay. extrovert or ambivert. And it would not surprise me at all to learn as I just did that you are an ambivert because you have some of the traits of an introvert, you have some of the traits of an extrovert uh, and that's what makes up an uh, ambivert. 
few of us are all the way on the spectrum one way or the other. You know, most of us are somewhere, somewhere in the spectrum, but we're not an extreme introvert or an extreme extrovert. But my point is, it's just really important to know who you're talking to, because you're going to deal with people very differently once you understand what their personality type is. I learned a new word today. So you refuse to sing a song and I'll, we'll, we'll let that go. And, but because I learned a new word, I've, I won't feel like I was uh, put off by it. So thank you for sharing the new ambivert. Thank you for sharing the new term. Sure. Thank you for your time, buddy, and for your learnings and uh, for your friendship and partnership. Much appreciated. And as always, it was a terrific pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. It was a great pleasure to be with you. And I very much appreciate your asking me on as a guest. Thank you, Dan. And I'll encourage folks to to reach out, to tap in. There's a, a wealth of knowledge, which I'm guessing you gleaned. Uh, if, if it's through the books, if it's through an engagement or just even a conversation, I think you'll have a wonderful experience. So thanks again, Dan. Take care, Jeff. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Evolving Advisor. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues. And if you would like to talk about succession planning or practice acquisitions, please drop us a line. We would love to help you in any way we can.